1: Atlassian Tribeca Festival is back with a lineup full of relatable and inspiring films, series, and more. Documentaries on stars like Elizabeth Taylor, Melissa Etheridge Linda Perry, and Renee Elise Goldsberry, plus narratives and comedy specials starring Britt Lauer Emily Bader, Hannah Einbinder and more. June 5th to June 16th in NYC Grab your tickets now at tribecafilm.com. Hello, this is
2: Molly Fisher from The Cut.
3: You almost sounded like one of those sexy machine bots just now. (laughs) Like an Alexa calling you up for a series? Yes, Yes, exactly.
2: (laughs) From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher.
3: I have to full disclosure. Uh So I'm at my office and my hair guy is going to come quietly flat iron because today I'm meeting Barack Obama. Oh, my God.
2: The person I'm talking to right now is Pamela Adlon, the actor, writer and director. Her show Better Things just returned for its third season on FX. It's a semi-autobiographical portrait of a single mom in L.A. with three daughters. Pamela's character makes her living in Hollywood's unglamorous day to day grind She's working steadily as an actor and supporting her family, but she's not out there on any red carpets. Here's a scene with Pamela's character and her teenage daughter.
3: You had a party. No, it wasn't a party in any way. You left. I had to work. You don't have to work, Mom. What? How do you think we ever have anything? You work because you want to be famous. This is so unfair that I think I'm going to pass out. Oh, my God.
2: I'm talking to Pamela today because her career is a case study in the subject of this week's show, ambition. That internal force that wakes you up at 2.30 a.m. full of ideas, that makes you want to do more than you thought you could, or than anyone else said you can. We're going to be talking to two women who have embraced their ambition, and one man who's trying to let go of his. And we're going to start with Pamela Adlon. Her story is about the power of ambition. It's also about the limits of what ambition alone can accomplish. She's wanted the same thing for decades, but it's only in the last few years that she's reached the meeting Barack Obama stage of her career. And she got started when she was young.
3: I was a kid, and we moved to L.A., and like I met this one girl who was like, I have an agent. And I was like, what's an agent? I want an agent. (laughs) And so I opened the phone book, and I looked up the name of an agency And I sat my parents down on the couch in our living room of the house that we later had to move out of because my parents went bankrupt. Um, (laughs) I sat them down on that couch and I said, I just want to tell you guys, I want to act and I want to get an agent. And also I made an appointment and it's on this day and it's with this lady And my mother was like, well, it's going to be a lot of cattle calls and a lot of rejection. I was like, I don't care. I want in. I want in. Pamela was 12 when she cold called the agent. And before long, she was in the agent's office. She was just like the original, like, OG, you know, cool, uh, New Yorkie. The kid's terrific. (laughs) (laughs) I love the kid. I'm going to sign her. Her agent
2: started sending her out on auditions. Pamela's mom had warned her there'd be lots of rejection. But
3: pretty quickly, she booked a dream job. When I booked a Barbie commercial, I was out of my mind because I was such a Barbie fanatic growing up. And I was so fucking excited. I couldn't believe that I got this Barbie commercial. On the day of the shoot, Pamela showed up on set, and the director
2: told her what she was supposed to do. Strut, turn, toss her hair. So Pamela does it. She nails it. The director tells her she's nailed it. And then he turns to a blonde girl who's also on set. He tells her to do it just like Pamela did.
3: I realized, oh, I'm here to teach the blonde girl how to strut like me. So I guess they liked my strut, but they didn't like my look. I never was in the commercial. And that, that was my first commercial experience. This is the point at which the pure and total superficiality
2: of the entertainment industry might be enough to stomp out a person's ambition. She's 12. Imagine being a 7th grader and having a grown-up in charge tell you that nobody wants to see you. Pamela, however, did not quit.
3: Pamela came back. I got hired again for another Barbie commercial. I'm like, oh, yes, reparations. (laughs) Here we go. And so then they said, okay, go to makeup. I'm like, oh shit, it's real this time. I go to makeup and they put makeup on my hands and I take Barbie out of the shower and I turn her towards the sink and the mirror and then you cut away and it's the same blonde girl. (laughs) Your enemy. (laughs) I was her hands in the second commercial. (laughs) <laughs> oh, Molly, can you hold on for one sec? Sure. My hair guy's here.
2: <laughs> Pamela wound up finding a very un-Barbie niche in the industry. She worked steadily through her teens, playing tough girl tomboy parts, like the skateboarding kid sister of a pink lady in Greece, too.
3: Name's Dolores. Dolores Repchuk. Some jerks call me Woodchuck or Repchuk, but I prefer Dolores, got it?
2: She actually went to one audition dressed as a boy, and gave her name as Paul instead of Pamela. She got the part. She did well for herself. When she was 17, she was able to buy her own apartment with money she'd made. But then, just at the age when most actresses' careers would be taking
3: off, the peak ingenue years of your early 20s, she stopped getting parts. I was in a bad place where the jobs were drying up, like the on-camera jobs and, and stuff like that. Uh, I, I really couldn't pay my rent. And then all of a sudden I started booking voiceovers and it completely turned my life around. My first job in voiceover was actually a commercial campaign for 7-Eleven. I played young Kevin in these 7-Eleven spots. It was was young Kevin, always on the go. Hey, Dad, I've got a big thirst for a big gulp because I'm always on the go. Can I borrow the car? (laughs) And I did that for years and years And then I started kind of getting parts like guest star parts on animated shows. It was a thing that you looked around you're like, this is a real job. Like you could come and do voices for cartoons. And so I desperately, desperately wanted to do that. And then in my late 20s, I booked King of the Hill. That's like the holy grail of voiceover King of the Hill was an animated series that ran for 13 seasons
2: and developed a quiet, steady following. Pamela once again found herself playing a boy, Bobby Hill, the family's preteen son, whom Wikipedia describes as husky. I
3: haven't even hit my growth spurt yet, and I'm already a stud. In
2: 2002, she won a voiceover Emmy for her work as Bobby. This wasn't the fantasy version of showbiz success, but still, she'd found a way to make a living in the industry. How did you feel about not doing on-camera stuff as much?
3: It is a very unique ability to be able to use your voice in that way. And so I never felt that I was missing out on anything. I felt like I was part of an elite, brilliant club. But there was a point where after I had my third daughter, I started thinking about my life and I started thinking, Hmm, I wonder how much longer King of the Hill is going to be going on. Because I watched my dad's jobs, you know, dry up. When Pamela was growing up, her dad worked in TV as a writer and producer. And her mom
2: held down a series of jobs that supported the family when his work was patchy. But after her dad turned 50, things got tough. He wasn't getting hired at all. Her parents eventually filed for bankruptcy and had to move out of their house. Watching all this happen had shaped Pamela's choices. It had taught her that you never knew when things would fall apart. Ambition was risk, and it required a kind of scrappy resourcefulness.
3: You can't rest on your laurels because there are no laurels. You have to anticipate things. And so I started auditioning again. She got a call about a TV part. A writer she'd
2: worked with on a pilot years before remembered her. He remembered that she'd been funny, but that she'd gotten fired because the executives didn't think she was hot enough. He recommended Pamela to a comedian who was creating a new sitcom for HBO. That comedian was Louis C.K., and in 2006, he hired her to play his wife on Lucky Louie. She co starred in the series, but she also got a producer credit and started contributing story ideas. For the first time, all the experiences she'd had off screen, struggling and being a mom, became professional assets.
3: You know how I feel about Barbies and that they completely misrepresent women.
4: Oh,
5: fooey Girls love Barbies.
4: Look how happy she
3: is. Well, I don't want my daughter to grow up and worship a tiny stripper.
2: It only lasted one season, but Louis brought her with him when he started his next show, Louis, on FX. She had a recurring role, and the two also became writing partners. And when FX decided they wanted a Louis-esque show centered on a woman, Louis recommended Pamela. The two of them created better things together. Louis had been the accelerant to her ambition. Working alongside him, her career had ignited in a new way. After years in Hollywood, as a middle-aged mom, she'd come into her own as a TV auteur. And then, of course, in the fall of 2017, the New York Times published their report on the longstanding rumors that Louis had a habit of masturbating in front of unconsenting women. FX cut ties with him. Pamela did, too. But without him, she wasn't sure what would happen to better things.
3: I had to take some time to really figure out if I wanted to and how to really get back to a place where I could make my show. Louis is a subject she's reluctant to talk about. She's finally reached a
2: point in her career where she can do exactly what she wants. And he's the first thing anyone wants to ask her about. I just need to focus, she told The New Yorker recently. I don't want to have to weigh in on his sets. This has been one of the lingering questions of the last couple years. What to make of all the women whose lives were intertwined with guys like Louis? Whether you think they're complicit enablers or collateral damage, they're within the bad man blast radius. And when a man helps enable a woman's rise, what happens to her in his fall? Ultimately, Pamela decided to make a third season of Better Things. She's starring, directing, and for the first time, running a writer's room by herself. The season premiere aired last week. And she's coming to terms with being on her own in the spotlight. Chasing your ambition for decades means overcoming obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And then finally you get there. You've got the thing you always wanted. You're in charge. And the only
3: thing left is you. It's an enormous amount of responsibility because if it works, I get all the glory. And if it doesn't work, I'm totally to blame. I never imagined that... I would be in a position like this, you know, because coming from so many like moments that you're almost there, you're almost there, and it's taken away, it's taken away, it's taken away. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I just didn't think that that was in the cards for me. A woman who turns 50, all of a sudden, finally, I've arrived, you know, I'm like Tootsie. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, it's unbelievable.
2: Pamela's path has been unlike that of pretty much any other woman in Hollywood. And it all starts with that 12-year-old girl picking up the phone and deciding to get herself an agent. She's dealt with setbacks, but she's never really felt ambivalent about her ambition itself. That is not the case for the two people we're about to hear from. Coming up after the break, two terrifyingly ambitious people on trying to make themselves live without ambition.
1: Did you know the Tribeca Festival premieres more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts and live tapings of popular podcasts you know and love. Attend Slow Burn, the hit narrative podcast exploring the Briggs Initiative. Experience an exclusive live taping of Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy as they investigate complex stories of people who've done wrong or been wronged, Or get a vibe check on today's politics, entertainment, and news with a live taping of Vibe Check with Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com.
3: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America
0: can help.
1: Welcome back. We are now leaving
2: Hollywood for my office, but stay with me. I swear it will be fun. This week, we're talking about ambition. It's a subject we think about a lot at The Cut. And recently, New York Magazine's insanely ambitious editor-in-chief, Adam Moss, announced he was stepping down. That made my boss, Stella Bugby, think more closely about her own ambition.
4: Like, I close my eyes and I think, how does this feel? How does this actually feel? And it's so corny but I was like it feels like I have like mercury or something in my body and it rises and it falls and it kind of chases me around and it it's in there and I don't know where it came from and half the time when I'm driving myself super crazy with something I think why am I like this where does this come from <laughs> who made me like this it can't be of me this is some alien feeling I feel like it's both poisonous and electrifying. She wrote
2: about all this last month in an editor's letter that she called The Half-Life of Ambition. She talked about her career and her mercury blood. But after it was published, looking back at the letter, she saw all the
4: other things she wished she'd written. I realized I had been holding back on several things in the letter. Why do you think that was? I think talking about ambition is unappealing to a lot of people. And admitting that you have it is tricky, but probably on some level, I was embarrassed.
2: I'd argue that there's something kind of vulnerable about ambition. Owning up to ambition means acknowledging there's something you want and you don't have, something you might not get, which is not always easy to do. So we sat down to talk about what she'd left out. She'd always been ambitious, she said. It went back to when she was a kid. She'd settled on a career, graphic design, when she was still a teenager. And all through college, she was doing internships that would set her on that path. Right out of college, she got a job doing the exact things she wanted to do, or the things she thought she wanted to do.
4: She'd been ambitious enough that she managed to give herself a midlife crisis at 22. About six months into that job, I realized I did not want to do that job. And I called my mom and I said, I've picked the wrong profession and it's too late and now I'm stuck for the rest of my life. And she was like, you're insane. You're 22. What are you talking about? It just change." And I said, oh, no, mom, you don't understand. I've invested so much in this career.
2: I love trying to convince your parents. that like, <laughs> I love that conversation where it's like,
4: no, 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 I actually am fucked. I really, truly felt like, now what? You know, I'm the victim of my own ambition.
2: This was a moment when she had to confront her ambition and ask what she actually wanted. Her job wasn't making her happy. And there were other things in her life that she wanted to
4: change, too. Right before I met my husband, I had a different boyfriend. And he was great. He was like the sweetest person on earth. And at a certain point in that relationship, I realized he had no ambition. And that was the moment where I thought, oh, wow, I, I can never stay with this man. I have to go find another man. (laughs) And I wrote a list of things that I wanted in my next boyfriend after we broke up. And ambition was the top of the list. Did you then subsequently end up finding them? I did right away. Yeah, I did. (laughs) How long did it (laughs) take? I found a very ambitious man. (laughs) Um, And I have to say, like, we're still together and it's been 22 years. And it's one of the things that I think keeps me interested in him as a person is that, you know, is that quality. Yeah. And I, like, really feel that way about most of my lasting relationships have that quality to them, where we may not be ambitious about the same things, but it's this drive for excellence. By 27, she'd married an ambitious man,
2: she'd gotten a big new job, and she was going after the things she wanted when she found out she was pregnant with twins. This is the classic challenge for ambitious women. If you want kids, they're probably going to happen during the exact same years when you're working hardest at everything else. And Stella wanted kids, so she decided to step back, focus on being a mom, and set aside her other ambitions, at least for the moment.
4: I quit that job, and I was a stay-at-home mom for 18 months. And I went insane. (laughs) I went to an event. I, like, left the kids and went out to a... Thing and someone introduced me to someone else. as, oh, this is Stella, and she used to be a designer. And I had this horrible panic, like, rage-filled. Of course, it was a man who said it, you know, <laughs> like, wanting to punch him in the face, like, ah, you know, I'm still, I'm still a designer, you know. At the time, I was like, oh, I should probably do something. It wasn't going to go away,
2: she realized. Ambition would just go
4: into hibernation waiting for a chance to re-emerge. Despite my intentions of taking on less, I was probably never going to actually take on less. Is it possible to be ambitious and happy? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't think so. I think you have moments of happiness. Yeah. You have fleeting moments of happiness. Yeah. And then you're right back to um, wishing for more or, you know, being self-critical. Part of why I wrote the letter, but also just the last several years have been coming to terms with the idea that this ambition is not going to get fun and easy and relaxed and resolved and just kind of learning to appreciate the discomfort of it. My anxiety now is not whether or not I'm going to be ambitious, but just whether or not there will be an outlet for all this stuff, for all this energy.
5: I would hate to feel this way at 80. I have been in a tortured relationship with ambition my whole life.
4: That's Adam Moss.
2: In her letter, Stella wrote about Adam, never before coming to work here had someone enabled me to push past what I thought I was capable of. That was thrilling. I wish that experience for all ambitious people. Adam's been editing New York Magazine for 15 years, and his ambition is almost a running joke for the people who work with him. One time, I remember he casually suggested that we ought to try to make the cut, the center of national conversation, at least once a week. Stella and I were like, "Okay, sounds good. Get right on that. When Adam announced he was leaving, he said his plan for the future was to try living with less ambition. But based on everything we'd ever seen of Adam, living with less ambition seemed unlikely.
5: From the beginning, I was really ambitious and Thought ambition was a terrible thing. Why? Because when I grew up, which was just at the very end of the '60s, hippydom, which I so romanced in my head, was exactly the opposite of ambition. Ambition was considered like the man, uh, slick and corporate and ugly. You know, it was for bankers.
2: God forbid. <laughs> Hippies be damned, Adam had ambition. It was in him, and it was going to get out.
5: In junior high school, there was a situation where a student got to direct the school play. And I was like a little theater geek, and I had actually, you know, a lot of theater experience. And I felt that I was like obviously the person who should be the... Director of the school play, and I thought I would get this job. I thought it was obvious. There was no one else, like even remotely qualified, as a as a as a as a fourteen-year-old <laughs> to do this thing, and uh, and I didn't get it. And I was like weeping, <laughs> and my mother who did not ordinarily stand up for me in this way, (laughs) went and stormed the principal's office asking why I didn't get it. And the reason he gave was, you know, he's just not a leader. He's just not strong enough. And that was like, I think maybe (laughs) that was the beginning of my real ambition. (laughs) Because I said, fuck this. (laughs) I am strong enough. I can do this.
2: Leaving college. He knew he wanted to make magazines, and that's exactly what he did. His career has been pretty much a straight line going up for 40 years now. So what did that feel like at its height, to be able to give ambition free reign?
5: I would just, like, jump out of bed, <laughs> <laughs> like almost as if I, like, had a defibrillator, and it was, like, <laughs> it triggered, and I just jumped out of bed, and then I would maniacally make lists. I was a crazy list maker and jump on my bicycle and race to work. (laughs) And then couldn't wait to go, you know, tell everyone my brilliant ideas that I had (laughs) that morning. And by the way, the night, the middle of the night before, because I would like wake up with a jolt at 2.30 in the morning every night with like a million ideas. I was just racing. My mind was just electrified.
2: Things have changed, though. After following the straight line of his ambition for decades. He realized it had taken him away from the work he actually wanted to do. He spent more time being a boss than making magazines. Even the mornings felt different.
5: I just woke up every day slightly less neurotically consumed with the excellence of the thing that we were making. My job had evolved in ways that I didn't necessarily—it wasn't the things that I actually loved like, I really, I love working on stories. I was, like, working on stories so infrequently.
2: Hearing Adam talk about his career after Stella and Pamela, something occurred to me. When you're never forced to pause or change course, when you just get validation and rewards and success, you never have to reexamine what you really want. You never have to reconsider or recommit to your ambition. Adam's never been told that he wasn't pretty enough for a Barbie commercial. He's never gotten stir-crazy on maternity leave. In all those years since he didn't get to direct the school play, it's pretty much been up
4: and up and up. You've had this nonstop success
5: basically for the last, what, 30 years? Right? Something like that. Something like that. Well, I wouldn't call it success necessarily, but def- definitely, okay, or yeah, right, it's success. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you like let yourself take the victory lap. <laughs>
5: <laughs> but just that
4: it made me realize, like, There have been times where I've had to take time off, let's say, for pregnancy or whatnot, and that's when I learned how ambitious I was, was like, oh, I really hate this. I hate this (laughs) so much. I hate not having anything
5: to do. I don't know that it will be a better life or it will be me, but I've never tried it. So the question is, can you change?
2: Adam's trying. He said that once he leaves New York Magazine, he wants to spend some time painting. It's something you just picked up recently.
5: I, like, did some things quickly that were pretty good, and I got ambitious for my painting. Mm. And I thought, hmm, maybe I can be a painter. And then, like, just as quickly, I realized, no. I, <laughs> I, hit, the, I hit the ceiling <laughs> as fast as I – like, I really – I got, like, okay. And then it wasn't like I was on this amazing learning trajectory. I actually – that's as I good don't. as I was going to be. And so, and like, no, this, like, I'm, I suck. And so then it was like I was really bummed. And then I thought to myself, well, no, I really love it. So if I can accept not having ambition for my painting,
4: then... Or, or I, just being mediocre. Or just
5: being mediocre. Oh, my God. Then, <laughs> then I could have a good time and I could continue to do this thing that, that, that was giving me joy.
2: Stella said she didn't think it was possible for an ambitious person to just let go and be happy. But Adam's going to give it a shot. We wish him all the best in what might be his greatest challenge yet. The quest for contented mediocrity. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVee and Olivia Nat. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Stella Bugby, Nazneen Rafsanjani, Lynn Levy, and Alex Bloomberg, who told me that he likes me, both as a person and on this podcast. Mixing by Emma Munger and Andy Christens. Our music is by Haley Shaw and Emma Munger. Our theme song is Play It Right by Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarley, and Alexandra Souser-Monig. Special thanks this week to Sasha Levine and Phoebe Unterman. Better Things footage is courtesy of FX Networks. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.
0: Hey, Cut listeners. My name is Rachel Ward. I am the host of another Gimlet show called Chompers. Chompers is a two minute toothbrushing show for kids. And this week, we're featuring the stories of ambitious and intrepid women from history on Heroines Week. We wanted to give you cut listeners an early listen to tonight's episode. So here it is. It's about heroin Sybil Luddington. Hey there. You're just in time for more Chompers, your twice-daily toothbrushing show. It's Heroin's Week, and every day we're telling you the story of a heroin. Start brushing on the top of your mouth and brush the inside, the outside, and the chewing side each tooth. Three, two, two one. It's Heroines Week, where we talk about heroic women from history. Tonight's heroine is Sybil Ludington, a brave hero who may have helped save America. We don't know exactly what happened, but this is the story that people have told about what happened many years ago. In the 1700s, before America was called the United States, the British and Americans were at war. It was called the Revolutionary War, and the Americans were fighting to be free from the British and become their own country. Switch your brushing to the other side of the top of your mouth and brush all the way to the molars in the back. Sybil Luddington was born in America, and when she was just a teenager, Sybil's dad was a famous leader on the American side of the war. One dark night, a messenger came to warn Sybil's dad that the British soldiers were coming to attack their town. Sybil's dad had to warn everyone on their side. But how could he? That's where Sybil comes in. Switch your brushing to the bottom of your mouth and brush in little circles around each tooth. Sybil was a fantastic horse rider, so her father entrusted her with a dangerous mission to warn everyone that the British were coming. It was pitch black outside, and Sybil had to ride fast, but also quietly, so no British spies would see her. Sybil rode through the night, telling every soldier she could find to go to her dad's house and prepare for battle. Switch your brushing to the other side of the bottom of your mouth, and give your tongue a brush too. By the time she was done, over a hundred American soldiers had gathered for the fight. Sybil was commended for her bravery and even got a personal thank you from General George Washington, who would later become the first president of the United States. And that's why Sybil Ludington is today's Chomper's heroine. That's it for Chompers tonight, but come back tomorrow for more heroines. Until then, three, two, one, spit. Chompers is a production of Gimlet Media.